Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but it felt like I was on my own to figure out all of the answers. So now I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. My guest this week is Holly Samuel, a registered dietitian, personal trainer, running coach, and master of education in eating disorders. Today we're talking about carbs. We're talking about carbs because carbs are important for running performance. And there are a lot of feelings that people have about carbs and maybe clearing up some of the misunderstandings about what carbs actually do in your body, why they're important for your performance and like your overall health and well-being. And when we talk about well-being, it's not just about your physical health. We're also talking about your mental health as well. So we cover a range of topics in this conversation. There are actual like concrete, if you exercise this much and weigh this much, eat this many carb guidelines towards the end of the episode. So don't think it's just like a discourse on carbohydrate. Like we tell you how to carb load. It's actually super cool. So listen, learn, and definitely let us know if you like it. Holly, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. I've listened for a while, so I'm pumped to be here. It's a first time, long time listener, first time caller situation. (laughs) Um, This is really exciting. And actually, I am excited to talk with you specifically because I know that you're actually the dietitian for one of my coaching athletes. So that's even another connection we have there. But let's start off and how about you tell us about yourself as a runner, an athlete, about your background and how you became a sports dietitian. Yeah, I know. It's good to see your face. I heard she had you as a coach and I was like, okay, at least I know that that's going properly. That's awesome. (laughs) I can rely on that. Um, But yeah, I'm I'm excited to be here. Uh, My name is Holly. I'm a registered dietitian. I'm also a personal trainer um, and I have my master's in education with a focus in eating disorders. Um, So I've kind of used that in my practice a little bit, which is called Fit Cookie Nutrition, um, which is my virtual private practice where I kind of hang out as the dietitian coach, podcaster, um, and help runners make peace with food, um, you know, and kind of use the knowledge that we work with together to fuel their next PR or just, you know, run for life uh, with less risk of injury and burnout. That's what I'm all about. So um, yeah, I mean, in terms of how I got into running, I definitely hated it for most of my life. Um, I never liked the endurance aspect. I was more of like, a short burst power type athlete. Um, I like grew up riding horses and did a lot of strength training around barn work. Um, and then I got into running later in college when I wasn't in the barn as much, it was just a different way for me to kind of take care of my mental health a little bit and be active. And I totally caught the bug, like right around the time of the Boston marathon bombings. That's when I started training for like my first half marathon. And, um, it's been really fun ever since. And I never thought I would be where I am right now, but here I am. I am a person who loves running. So (laughs) here we are. I love this kind of like plot twist. Like you're a runner now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like, Oh, I never saw that coming. (laughs) And I'm excited to talk about our topic today, which is carbs. And we're going to talk a lot about carbs and in depth about why they're important. And I also appreciate that you have a background in eating disorders because I'd like to talk about that as well in the context of some of the way that fad diets and popular eating programs are being promoted um, and and kind of how that uh, 
can mask some disordered eating in, in certain cases. So we'll, we'll talk about all of that as we go along. But let's start at the very beginning. And we talk about carbs as being really important for distance uh, runners, for athletic performance in general. Carbs, carbs, carbs are really important. And let's just explain, if you can, from a technical perspective, like why do we need carbs as runners? What do they do for us? All right. I'm excited. They're my, they're my favorite. And right now they're just getting a bad rep with diet culture. So in defense of carbs, let's dive into this. Um, so essentially, you know, carbohydrates, which, you know, if you don't know, they come from like whole grains, fruits, some starchy vegetables. Um, you know, there's technically carbohydrates in all vegetables. A lot of them are just very diluted with like water and fiber. And when we eat them, um, they essentially turn into glucose. That's like the building block of carbohydrates. Um, And when glucose enters our body, essentially that triggers a response from our pancreas to release a hormone called insulin. Um, Insulin is like a key. It acts as a key and it opens our cells. Glucose goes from our bloodstream into the cell for energy where it enters these super fancy things like glycolysis and the Krebs cycle and the electron transport chain. And that produces energy for us. Um, And if we are runners, essentially, our brain and muscles, actually, just to go back, if we're humans, essentially, um, our brain and muscles use carbohydrates as the primary source for energy. Um, So as runners, when we are really working really hard in our run training, um, especially, you know, if you're incorporating more distance or more speed work or, you know, one or the other or both, um, you know, carbs are going to be a really important fuel source for you. And it's going to be more important that you're consuming enough of them so that your body can perform in your workouts, but also, you know, just hold itself together and do other bodily functions. Um, A fun fact I like to drop is that the average like human healthy brain requires about 130 grams of carbs per day just to like function properly. So that doesn't really involve like doing a ton of brain work or thinking or like running, but just to like exist and function properly. Um, And most of our like low carb diets kind of on the market right now, you know, without medical supervision, or if they're not medically necessary, they are like way below 130 grams, um, which is why most people have a tough time with them. But that's I'll get on my soapbox about that topic later. So let's talk about the difference between carbohydrates and other sources or substrates of energy that our body might use as fuel. Because our bodies, when they're looking for things to burn for energy, they preferentially burn carbohydrate, glucose, glycogen, when it's available. But then if that's not available, they do start to burn other sources of fuel as well, but they just don't burn them as efficiently. Mm-hmm. Do you kind of want to explain the difference between using carbs versus using, you know, fatty acids versus using lactate or anything else that our body might say, well, I guess I could use this. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go like to biochem for a sec and I'll try to not get too much in the weeds here, but essentially like, you know, our body uses carbs for energy. That is like the gold standard. That's what it prefers because what I said is that glucose enters like the fancy process of like glycolysis, you know, and the Krebs cycle and the ETC electron transport chain. And that produces for us about 29 to like 38 grams or not grams, but 29 to 38 ATP. And if you've heard of ATP, that is just basically a fancy term for energy. Um, And that's great. That's cool. Our body likes to do that. Um, If we break down fat for energy, so like I said, carbohydrates, they break down into glucose. So fat, like dietary fat or fat stored in our body, 
that breaks down to fatty acids. And fatty acids, when they are oxidated, which is a longer, slower, more fancy process than glycolysis or the Krebs cycle, that produces like 100 to 107 ATP. So a lot of people would think, wow, that seems like a lot more bang for my buck. Why don't we become fat adapted? That's a big term right now um, in the endurance world as being fat adapted. And that's a great point, you know, but essentially that process of breaking down fats is so much slower than the process of breaking down carbohydrates, even though the fat one produces more energy, technically it's slower. So it doesn't produce as much, you know, per minute per se. So it's still really important that we are getting energy from carbohydrates because they are the gold standard. Our body likes to go for those first. Now, like you said, if we don't have any carbs, glucose, you know, hanging out around in our bloodstream, um, or we don't have any of it stored in the form of glycogen in our muscles and liver, you know, you're not just going to drop dead. Like your body has a lot of backup mechanisms to get energy. So it'll use those fatty acids, even though it's kind of slow, it'll use, you know, proteins, which break down into amino acids. So it'll degrade your muscle cells, um, you know, and some of the other tissue in your body to stay alive. And the brain has a lot of, you know, reserve backup uh, strategies to stay alive and keep you alive. So, you know, we don't really want to just be staying alive when we're trying to perform well as an athlete, you know, we want to have like, you know, our ducks in a row, we want to have everything that we need to be a functional human. And then we also want to have enough carbohydrates to perform well. Does, does that kind of answer your question? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's the whole point is that um, it, when it comes to becoming fat adapted, there are, it's not like an on and off switch where it's like either you're burning carbs or you're burning fat in almost everything that you do. Your body is always using different fuel sources, like sitting here right now, like my body's burning fat, your body's burning fat. Um, but it's when, especially when the intensity of our effort increases that it preferentially burns more and more carbohydrate and then almost exclusively at very high efforts. Yeah, exactly. So uh, like what we kind of like to call it in like the nutrition and like sports fizz world is like, you know, being metabolically flexible. So like your, your body is well adept in burning both carbs and fat for energy because, you know, if we are in a state, especially if you're training for something like a half full ultra marathon, you know, where you're out there for just like a long time, no matter how fast you are, um, you know, essentially your body's not just going to, you know, oh, we're going to burn through all our glycogen and then we're going to flip that switch off and then we're going to start with fat and then we're going to flip that switch off and then we're going to start. It burns a little bit of everything the whole time, but with the idea that glycogen and carbohydrate are its primary fuel source. So, you know, if we, you know, are kind of going out way too fast at the start line, or we get excited, or like, you know, a dog barks at us and our heart rate spikes, um, like you said, if that intensity gets higher, we will burn through the glycogen a little bit faster, because that is breaking down very easily for us to use for energy. Um, so with like the half full, you know, anything that's basically going to be over two hours long, that's enough glycogen um, stored in our body will last us about two hours. So you know, we're not just going to burn through all of it first, you know, we're going to burn through a little bit of glycogen, a little bit of fat along the way. But the idea is you don't really want to run out of that primary fuel source, which is glycogen, but you also want to be able to burn fat for energy. So, um, you know, that's not quite as like clean cut as we want it to be, especially when we're talking about endurance events. Um, but they're both really important. So for an athlete who is saying, okay, like I get it, I need carbs in my diet. Um, I do know that we talk about the recommendations for getting enough carbohydrate. It does vary depending on who the athlete is. 
But sometimes if an athlete says, wow, I'm craving carbs, like I all, I can't stop eating carbs. What does that tell us about what will be going on with them? It's a great question. Um, that's something I hear often. Um, so if this is you, like if you're like, yeah, I feel like I do pretty good throughout the morning and then I get to 3 p.m. and I want to kill all of my coworkers and eat the whole pantry. Um, you know, if that's you and you're primarily craving carbs, uh, that's super common, especially in runners. So what happens, what can happen really often, like a situation um you know, where that's the case is that oftentimes people aren't eating enough carbohydrates, especially around like their workouts. So maybe they're not quite fueling those properly. And it's kind of driving them into a huge like carb deficit later in the day. And then your brain's really smart, your body's really smart, it's gonna make you make up for that (laughs) mistake. Um, You know, and in terms of like honoring our hunger and fullness, when we're ravenous, it's really hard to honor our fullness, because we're just trying to survive. It's a kind of a survival state reaction. So oftentimes, it can be because you're not eating enough carbs, like earlier in the day or throughout your whole day or around your workout, especially if your workout is like, earlier in the day um, for my morning runners, or it can also be because our meals just aren't well balanced um, in general. And what I mean by that, if you know anyone who listening to this has worked with me or you know has seen other running dietitians on Instagram and all of our posts on social media, you know, we often talk about, okay, like your meals and snacks should include all of the macronutrients that give us energy um, or calories. So, you know, that's carbohydrates, that's protein and that's fat. And while carbs digest really quickly and give us energy quickly, like I just talked about, they don't really hang out for a long time in the gut. So they don't keep you super full. So if you're only eating carbohydrates, yeah, you're not going to be super full. Um, that's where kind of protein and fat come in as well. What about for a runner? And I know we are specifically focusing on performance generally, uh, as the kind of underpinning of the topic today, but what about if somebody says, okay, I understand all of this. However, I'm not training for performance. Why can't I cut carbs out of my diet as a runner? Because I want to lose weight or I want to explore that whole fat adapted thing. That's a great question. If I had like a clean cut answer for that, I would have a million dollars. So essentially when, when I work with someone, and this is why it's really helpful to work with someone one-on-one because there is so much information out there and some of it may or may not apply to you until you get in front of a professional who can apply specific information to you. Um, I always ask someone like, what are your goals and what do you want to come first? Like, what's the priority? Because someone often, the super common, will say, okay, so like I want to train to Boston qualify at this marathon in 16 weeks. And I also want to lose like 15 pounds. <laughs> um, I'm like, that's great. You know, me too. But, um, you know, essentially, you know, that's that's not necessarily, those things don't necessarily go together. The, the nutrition strategies for them may differ quite a bit, um, you know, and we may need to pick one first, you know, is your primary goal to, you know, perform your best at this marathon? Um, or is your primary goal to lose weight and, you know, just kind of get through the marathon? Um, because in terms of weight loss, you know, that does require a calorie deficit. And it does require, you know, potentially changing up the timing of our nutrients and what composes our meals. And that varies a lot based off the person. I'm not going to get too into that. But yeah, if we're focused on weight loss, you know, then, carbohydrates, you know, they do play an important role in weight loss, especially the timing, but they also play an important role in keeping us injury free and also getting us the performance we want. So, 
you know, you're going to require a lot more carbohydrates to get you those things versus, you know, when compared to weight loss because of the caloric deficit. Um, so, and like I'm using the marathon as an example, I typically don't recommend anyone train for a marathon with a goal of weight loss because it's just such a monster. Um, you're really setting yourself up for injury if you're doing something like that. And it doesn't mean that some people won't train for a marathon and like kind of accidentally lose weight. Um, but a lot of people find that the opposite happens too. So, um, you know, I kind of recommend people really focus on the training for that and feeling their body well, especially as they get closer to like those peak weeks where the runs are really long, they're really hard and recovery is really key. But if you're in your off season, that's typically where you can play a little bit more with body composition without sacrificing your risk of injury. And the danger with the underfueling, whether it's underfueling with a certain macronutrient group or underfueling generally in your calories, is that you're going to hurt yourself because underfueling is really serious. It's not just like, oh, I won't perform very well. You know, there are, you can do things like break your bones, you can mess up your hormone health, you can lose your hair, you could like, there's some really nasty side effects to chronic. Uh, deficits that are don't support what you're trying to do physically. Yeah. And, and a lot of the times too, with under fueling, like when we talk about that subject, like, you know, under fueling, and then that can lead to like a low energy availability, which is a little bit more serious and, you know, has a little bit longer of a recovery time. And in terms of, you know, the damage it's done. And then we can talk about, you know, the medical diagnosis, which is, you know, relative energy deficiency in sport or abbreviated REDS, um, you know, and that's a medical diagnosis. <laughs> like it is very serious. So, um, yeah, I mean with underfueling and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's intentional either. Some people are underfueling. I'd say most runners are probably underfueling, especially for the half and full marathon distance. And they don't even realize it because it's physically hard to eat that much food sometimes to do it correctly and to support, you know, all of that training. What I tell people too, I'm, I'm using like a, like a book to hold up my microphone, which people can't see, but the book is called intuitive eating. Um, and it's, you know, much better than just being used as a microphone. But we, we hear often about this topic of intuitive eating. What I say like in sport is that, you know, there's nothing intuitive about running a half or full marathon. Like it's a very specific distance. It's a very specific training plan. So it is a little bit more specific and we have to be pickier about the nutrition for it um, because it's not super intuitive. So it can be really easy to underfuel that training. So let's pivot back to focusing on performance and talk a bit because you've mentioned glycogen a couple of times and I talk about glycogen too. And sometimes when you're in the space of talking about this stuff every day, you forget that people don't really uh, under necessarily understand exactly what glycogen is and how, you know, what it does for us and, and what we're talking about. We talk about your glycogen or glycogen storage. So explain to us what is glycogen? Yeah, that's a really good point. So like I said, when we eat carbs, they break down into glucose and then we use the glucose for energy. Now, if we're not using the glucose for energy, you know, if we're just like sitting around at our desk or if we've kind of, you know, done what we need with the energy and we have a bit left over, um, that gets stored in the form of glycogen. So it's essentially like stored glucose or stored carbohydrate, um, in your muscles and then also in your liver, um, 
pretty much like the, they kind of say the average person stores about 2000 calories ish in their body of glycogen. Um, and what I think is interesting is that for every one gram of glycogen we store, we store about three grams of water. So if we hear these low carb diets, you know, oh, I cut out carbohydrates and I lost like five pounds. Well, yeah, that five pounds is probably your glycogen stores because that tends to go first and a lot of water weight and vice versa oh, I started training for my marathon and I started implementing performance feeling and I gained like three to five pounds. <laughs> Where'd that come from? You know, a lot of the times that's a good thing. You know, that's because our body's learning how to store glycogen and really improve the capacity at which it can store glycogen. And there's a bit of extra water weight with that. So again, the marathon, the half marathon, things that require us to get good at storing glycogen, you know, there's nothing intuitive about that. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean body composition goals are going to match with performance body composition goals. And the interesting thing about glycogen is that for muscle glycogen specifically, it it's it doesn't, um, it's being, it's used in the muscles in which it's stored. So we do store glycogen in all of our muscles, but it's not like when we run out of glycogen in our legs, our arm glycogen gets shuttled down to our legs. Like once that specific area has um, depleted its glycogen store, like it's out, it's out, it's over. Yeah, yeah it's over. And like it, it kind of starts um, depleting itself pretty quickly, like in the first part of like a long distance race or just a long distance run or bike or whatever. And then it kind of slows down a little bit and more fatty acids get pulled in to help with the energy. Um, so if you are not replacing, you know, some of that carbohydrate intake at the beginning of your run, um, you're going to risk kind of bottoming out in your glycogen stores early. And it's, it's hard to like make up for that. Um, you can't really just like, Oh, I better shove a bunch of carbs in my mouth and make sure that I restock my glycogen stores at mile 14. It doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Um, so it is important to practice, you know, making sure that you have enough glycogen on board and that you're not burning through it too quickly. And there are some things as we go through our training cycles that can add to the glycogen that we can store in terms of the types of workouts that we do, specifically long runs or glycogen depleting, even when we are fueling on those runs, and also the timing of when we eat after our runs in refilling those like glycogen stores. Because um, I was reading, I'm reading um, uh, Dr. Jason Carp's book, Running Periodization, right now, and he has a great analogy about how your body adapts, is that when you do something to your body, it basically replaces it with a better version because it says, oh, I want to get I want to be able to deal with this better next time. Here's a new upgraded version. And his, his analogy about glycogen storage is that once you deplete your glycogen, like let's say your glycogen is a, an eight ounce glass and you dump it out in, you know, as a during your run, you deplete your glycogen, your body says, oh, crap. And it replaces it with a nine ounce glass. <laughs> so that's all part of the more you use it, the better you get at it, the more you can store. And then eating afterwards refills that glycogen more efficiently. Yeah. And it really validates like, oh, yes, body, we do need to store more of this. Um, and when I said like the, the average person can store about 2000 calories, you know, w if we practice, we can really optimize like how big that bucket is. And if you don't practice, you know, you're not going to be quite as efficient with it on race day. Just like if you don't practice eating carbohydrates, you know, you're not going to be as good at processing those on race day. Our bodies, like you said, they're super smart. So they adapt to whatever feedback we're giving them. So like how I'll describe this to my clients is in typical, like, you know, marathon training plans, half marathon training plans, you know, we're doing a long run, like once a week, you know, maybe, maybe more if you're, you know, a higher mileage person. 
and maybe every 10 days, you know, if you have more recovery time. But for the most part, we are teaching our body, hey, once a week, we're really going to need to have a lot of glycogen because we're going to burn through it all. So it kind of teaches your body from a glycogen standpoint and a similar metaphor is like, oh, I need to like have fuel efficiency. Like I'm on the highway instead of like in the city, I need to get a little bit better at storing this and also a little bit better at using it. And, you know, depleting it once a week teaches your body, it'll be depleted once a week and then restocking it really quickly after and strategically throughout the rest of your day teaches your body. We're also going to get it back and store it and have a bigger cup to store it with. How do you feel about uh, glycogen depletion runs intentionally going out for a run, either starting fasted or not fueling during the run as a strategy to really deplete your glycogen storage? Yeah, I've, I've read a lot about this. Um, I don't personally practice it and I don't practice it with, with my clients. Um, mostly because like what I, what I understand about it is that a lot of the times there is going to be like an increased risk of injury, um, or burnout, you know, with doing something like this more regularly. Now, if you, if you run fasted every once in a while, like you're not going to explode, you're going to be okay. But, um, you know, in terms of making it a more consistent thing, you know, what, from what I've read in research, like a lot of the times the benefits that may be being a bit more metabolically active, having a bit of a bigger cup to store glycogen with, maybe having a bit better capacity to burn fat for energy because you've taught your body that's what it needs to do during that run, um, may not outweigh the risk of getting injured. So there's like the concept of even like training low, you know, low carb and then racing high and kind of giving your body the carbs it needs. And the problem with that is that, well, if you train low and you get injured, you'll never get to race, <laughs> um, you know, or if you train low and you do make it to the race because you're just resilient and you're not injury um, prone, it's still going to be hard for your body to take on carbs if it's not used to taking on carbs. Um, so that's personally, you know, what I've read in research and applying it to individuals that I work with. I mean, I don't think it's necessary. A lot of my individuals are not eating enough carbohydrates to begin with. Um, so I kind of work on that as a foundation at first, but you know, if you're really well trained, um, you eat enough carbohydrates and you want to mess with this a little bit. I mean, there is some benefit in research, but just know that the risks sometimes don't outweigh the benefit. And some of the questions I've gotten about glycogen depletion runs in particular have pointed to elite athlete training and saying, well, Meb did <laughs> glycogen depletion runs every week when he was training for X race. And I'm thinking you, my questioner, are not <laughs> Meb Gavleski yeah. and his training is completely different from yours. And just because it works in a laboratory or has worked among a certain subset of runners does not mean that it's necessarily, like you said, a good idea to apply to every runner because you're right. I mean, the risk of what we're doing, especially training for higher mileage races, it's dangerous. And we always have to weigh the risk of what we're doing with the benefit of the outcome. And sometimes these things just don't seem to pass that test where the risk is just too great, despite what the benefit might be. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, Meb's running like his easy runs in retirement at like seven minute pace. So like, that's not me. I don't know. But um, yeah, I mean, I think like from a standpoint of of that, yeah, like if you're super elite and you have literally all the tools in your toolbox that you could possibly use, and this is your job, I mean, yeah, you could probably afford to mess with some of the super picky fine tuning of your nutrition. Um, but from what I see most often in recreational runners, you know, even some pretty fast recreational runners is that they're not eating enough in the first place. So taking away 
their fuel, like doesn't really make sense. Um, and from a different standpoint too, like a lot of my runners that I work with do have like a relationship with food issue and they are restrictive and it does cause them problems. So me saying, okay, like before your next run, we're not going to eat, you know, for a lot of them, if we've made a lot of progress and getting them to finally eat enough or kind of get close, um, that's super confusing for them. It can trigger a lot of negativity and cause them to go into a downward spiral, which again is like a risk that I'm not really willing to take. Let's talk about refueling strategies after the run. Is it more beneficial to refuel in that, you know, immediate post-run window with your three to one ratio of carbs to protein and, or should you also continue to eat carbohydrates in the, you know, hours after that refueling period? Yeah, good question. I think it depends on what your goals are. Um, if we're talking about like performance related goals of like the average person, um, you know, like you just want to PR your next race type thing and you don't want to get injured. Um, yeah, I, I would definitely recommend that. So I would recommend having, you know, that three to one gram of like carb to protein ratio within 30 to 60 minutes after. And I always say like the sooner you have that, the sooner you start to recover and who doesn't want to recover faster. And then your meals, you know, for the rest of that day, what I work on with my clients is they should reflect kind of like the training load that you put on your body that day. And also if there's going to be an anticipated training load to be put on your body the next day, you have to start preparing for that. So from that glycogen storage standpoint, yeah, we do want to eat enough carbohydrates to kind of restore what we depleted. So if you did, you know, a run that was well over like that, you know, 90 minute ish mark where it's kind of like, all right, it's definitely a long run, relatively speaking (laughs) from science. You know, I think that you making sure at least half of your plate is carbohydrates and following meals throughout the day is super important to replenish. You know, and if you're talking about, all right, I did like my long run today, it was over 90 minutes. And maybe I'm also an athlete who has a long run tomorrow because maybe you do back to backs, you know, if you're trying to spend less time on your feet all in one day, or if you're training for something that's going to take you a long time to complete, it's important to kind of prepare your body for that run the next day too, on top of replenishing those glycogen stores. Now, If you are someone who just finished, you know, like a 45 to 90 minute run, like something that was more middle distance, still three to one, you know, ratio of carbs to protein after your run. And then, you know, what's on your plate in the following meals could look different, you know, because you didn't tap into your glycogen stores quite as much. So it could be like a third of your plate and so on and so forth. So that really segues nicely into carb loading, yeah. <laughs> um, the, the whole, the idea of preparing for future events, whether it's tomorrow or the race, you know, maybe it's race week and you're racing on Saturday or Sunday. And the idea of carb loading is basically to fill up your glycogen stores as full as they could possibly be. Mm-hmm. And like, is there, there is science behind this, like carbohydrate loading actually does work, but it's not like just, oh, go eat your pasta at pasta night dinner and voila, you'll be fine. Yeah. Nothing new on race day people or race week. Yeah. I would say this is a metaphor I use often. I, it makes sense to me because my parents are pilots and they say this all the time. So hopefully it'll make sense to other people too. But essentially, um, you know, when you're carbo loading, you want to think about filling your jet, you know, filling your jet source, like fuel source as much as you possibly can so that you are sitting like heavy on the tarmac on the runway. Like the plane is so heavy, it will literally sink a little bit into the tarmac, which is mind blowing. 
but you know, it's a little heavy to get off the runway. So that can make people feel oh, like, I don't know, do I want to feel like lighter or, you know, do I want to feel a little bit topped off? But then that plane is going to get to its destination in one piece because it has enough fuel. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's very similar for something like a half or full marathon where it's okay to feel a little bit fluffy after your carb load. That's kind of the whole point. Um, you know, it should, you should feel really good at the beginning of your race. And then you should also have enough fuel, um, with a good feeling strategy, of course, to get you through the end of your race. So, um, when it comes to carbo loading and men and women can both do this, there's a lot of back and forth out there right now about if females can carbo load or not. And the answer is they're a little bit better at some points of the month. They're a little bit, not as good at it at other points of the month but it's kind of a minute difference. And most of you aren't eating enough carbs anyway, so you should still carbo load. So essentially, you know, eating not really more calories, but keeping your calories the same and eating a little bit more percentage of those calories coming from carbohydrates within like the two to three days before your race, especially if it's going to be over a two hour race, um, whether that's half full marathon for you unless you're Kipchoge and it's 159, but, um, I digress. So, you know, eating more of your percentage from carbs is going to be beneficial for you before your race and should help top off those glycogen stores without making you feel super heavy or super bloated. And you want to practice this on your super long runs too, so that you know exactly where you're going to get those carbs from on race day so that you're not just going to the pasta dinner and eating pasta because you think you should, when you've never had this before. And I know every person is different, but are there any general recommendations for sources of carbohydrate when we're building up to that race day carbo load? Yeah. I mean, whatever works for the person, like something I have to practice often with clients, especially if they have like more sensitive, like guts, um, and like running long distances or running really higher intensities tends to jostle things up for them in their gut, even if they've been super careful, something we'll do is reduce our fiber intake like the week or like a couple days, depending on how severe it is before their race. So what that can mean essentially, because we know that a lot of our carbohydrate sources like fruit, vegetables, starchy vegetables, whole grains, uh, do have fiber in them. And that's, you know, a good thing for our, our general health and it keeps our gut healthy. But again, the marathon is not intuitive. <laughs> so, um, you know, we're going to cut some of that fiber out for those more sensitive people sometimes before a race. So that could mean getting more of your carbs from things like white, you know, grains. So like bagels, white bread, white pasta, white rice. And some people too, this is throughout training if they're super sensitive, um, you know, or doing like some of the higher glycemic or lower fiber carbohydrate sources. Um, and this does vary depending on the person. Like, you know, if you're someone who can't tolerate, you know, a lot of gluten, then maybe you're not going to have a bunch of pasta. Maybe you're going to stick to more potatoes and fruits and, you know, um, other sources of carbohydrates or like liquid sources of carbohydrates. I'm holding up a Gatorade, but people can't see me on a podcast, but holding, you know, doing those liquid sources can be helpful too. So whatever you can do to get enough of them in is what you should do. <laughs> Let's talk about, um, the fear of sugar spikes, I guess I could say. Um, cause I've gotten some questions about kind of generally centered around, well, isn't, isn't eating that many carbohydrates or drinking Gatorade or taking a gel or eating white rice, won't that spike my blood sugar? And isn't that something that I should avoid? How would you respond to those types of questions? 
That's a good question. So we actually find in some studies, I can't forget, I can't remember the name, but um, there was a study that basically trialed high versus low glycemic um, carbs. So like more refined grains, like your high glycemic, lower fiber versus like, you know, sweet potatoes and, you know, brown rice and whole wheat things like your high fiber, low glycemic. Um, and they tested kind of both of these after working out to kind of assess if the like one would help um, fill our glycogen stores up more or faster than the other. And they basically found that the high glycemic, um, you know, the lower fiber, um, more refined things actually filled our glycogen stores up a little bit faster um, than the lower glycemic, you know, quote unquote, healthier foods that we all think of and are told to eat. So, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to choose, you know, the white rice or the refined carbs if you don't want them. Um, but, you know, it is effective. So, you know, when you do eat plain carbohydrates like that, you know, it does cause more glucose, you know, to kind of rush into your bloodstream. It does cause your pancreas to have to release more insulin, those keys that then open your cells, store them for energy or glycogen. Um, and it might leave you hungry in like 15 minutes. If you're still eating a little bit of protein and fat, it will help like blunt that blood sugar spike. And again, this isn't something that you're doing every single day forever and ever. It's something you're doing, you know, very intentionally and specifically to help top off those glycogen stores and doing it from some of those lower fiber carbohydrates, it might be easier to do because then you won't fill up so fast where you're like, I can't possibly eat more because we want to be able to eat enough. It also may digest a little bit better because of that, depending on the person. And, you know, yeah, it might spike our blood sugar a little bit more than if you chose the less refined stuff, but it probably really won't make a huge difference. Um, there's some people who may be more sensitive to this and may have to be more mindful. But I mean, yeah, I think I think the intentionality of it, again, like the risks are not going to outweigh the benefits. And I know this is veering into medical advice territory, but I have gotten questions from runners who have diabetes, either type one or type two diabetes, and wondering what are some general guidelines for them to properly incorporate carbohydrates into their performance training? Yeah, again, it's going to depend on the person. But, you know, with diabetes, so with someone with type two diabetes, especially, or any condition that gives them some sort of insulin resistance where you know, when we eat glucose, carbohydrates, and that triggers that insulin release from the pancreas, the keys, the insulin, you know, isn't essentially shaped correctly, or it's not working, it's not quite opening the cell up the way we want it to, to allow that glucose to get in, um, which is why it hangs out in your bloodstream instead. And then you have a high fasting blood glucose or a high blood sugar, which is the more generic term. So I mean, there's different ways to kind of help these people get that insulin to work properly or get those cells to open up for energy. And again, I would stress with someone like that, that they're still eating balanced meals. You know, the breakdown of their meals might look a little bit different. They may have a little bit more protein, a little bit more fat because their body may respond to using a more like diverse fuel source for energy, but it doesn't mean that they shouldn't eat carbohydrates. It just means that the timing and the composition of their meals what they're eating the carbohydrates with <laughs> might have to look a little bit more specific um, for that particular medical condition. And this is kind of just illustrates the whole point about how everybody's, there are general guidelines, but there are really individual strategies for nutrition, depending on who you are as a runner and everything else that's going on in your life. Um, because it's really, it's impossible to look at two people and say, you need to be eating the exact same thing at the exact same time because we're all just a little bit different enough 
that there is no one size fits all strategy for this. Yeah. Cause like if that person with diabetes, you know, were to eat, um, you know, the, the, a carb gram amount recommendation and they were, you know, to eat it just kind of all at once or just like free for all throughout the day. And they weren't mindful about what they're pairing it with. Um, so they're not pairing it, you know, with protein or fat. They're just like willy nilly eating carbs all day because that's what they saw on Instagram, you know, on an Instagram post that all these other runners without diabetes were doing, um, you know, that might not work well for them. They might, that might backfire, you know, they might end up with a higher blood sugar, less glycogen stores because the sugar is not getting out of the bloodstream and feeling kind of lethargic on race day. So yeah, I mean, it really, I mean, I'm not being annoying. And I know like all like good healthcare professionals, we were like, Oh, I feel so annoying when I say it depends, but it really does depend. <laughs> so, um, you know, if you do have more specific like questions on that, it does really help to work with a professional because, you know, that information out there, the studies, the stuff that they found in a lab, like it, it may apply to you slightly differently. Let's talk a bit about why people are, you know, actually let's just back up and talking about healthy eating, masquerading disordered eating, because a lot of runners, I think would describe themselves as health conscious people, people who are, you know, chasing fitness or performance or aesthetic goals or health goals. I want to feel good. I want to look good. I want to run well. And there is a lot of the mainstream diet culture that then tells us that we have to eat a certain way in order to be a certain way. And that really can mask some pretty dangerous, disordered eating. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a whole, it's kind of still in the process of being added as a technical diagnosis, but there's a whole like eating disorder um, diagnosis to come essentially called orthorexia, where, you know, you're, you're not necessarily restricting calories on purpose. You're not necessarily purging your calories through exercise, you know, or, or vomiting or, you know, any of the other eating disorder types, but you're more, um, you know, really hyper-focused and maybe over-obsessive with the quality of food that you're eating and that that type of food is only healthy food or only whole food or only whatever kind of fits your standard or parameters of what you define as healthy. And there's a lot of diets that's kind of unfortunately also like infiltrated some of the medical field. So, you know, healthcare professionals are not immune to this, <laughs> you know, that promote this. Um, you know, they kind of say, yeah, like there are these food rules that you have to follow if you want to be healthy. And they promote these things with a health forward focus when really it's promoting disordered eating behavior. So, you know, something I talk about with my clients usually at our first or second appointments is like, do you have any food rules? Like what are, what food rules do you have for yourself? Cause I'll, I'll kind of go through what they eat in a day and some of their dietary, um, you know, just like schedule and uh, patterns and whatnot. And I'll notice some things like, Oh, you know, I had peanut butter breakfast and I try not to have it again at 3 PM, but then I do. And like, then I feel bad about it. And, you know, I can start to pick up on, you know, if there's food rules involved or, you know, they'll tell me, Oh, I have this and I know that's bad. Um, you know, so there are definitely, you know, our own self-perceived like morals around our eating habits. Um, and a lot of that does come from what's promoted through some of the restrictive diet culture that's out there posing as health. So, I mean, when someone is, you know, visiting my page on Instagram or if they're in my courses or working with me in any way, you know, it's really helpful um, since this is my specialty, if they identify as a runner, because also the diets that are out there, you know, a lot of them, even if there is some research showing potential benefits 
for the average healthy, maybe sedentary person that doesn't apply to runners. So, you know, that can help make it more black and white for people too. Well, you're identifying as a runner, you're telling me you want to work on your health through running and you do want to perform well as an athlete who is a runner, even, you know, if you're not an elite marathoner, even if you're, you know, running what you would consider a slower pace, you know, whatever that is relative to you, um, you're still a runner. So, you know, what's found in these studies about this specific restrictive diet just doesn't apply to you. So if you're having like a barrier around identifying yourself as a runner, because you think you have to run fast, or you have to run a certain distance, that can be really confusing for people. And logically, kind of looking at the food landscape in, you know, Western culture, American culture, it is obvious to look and say, look, there's a lot of added sugar. There's probably a lot of widely available food, which is low nutrient, which is a lot of stuff that it's like, yeah, you probably shouldn't be eating, you know, this processed food as your main staple of your diet. But how that kind of fear mongering around carbohydrate has been translated into, like you said, these fad diets and how low carb diets are really popular and like just becoming like, I remember, so it's just kind of, and I've talked about this before in previous episodes, I used to be very hardcore keto diet. Like when I started running, I was a keto runner. Um, I like was, you know, didn't eat carbs for a couple of years, eventually was ended up in running into some hormonal issues. Like I, my hormones were getting out of balance. And, um, anyways, I eat carbs now and I'm a big fan of them, but the fact that it's so like, you can go into target and all these things are like keto this and keto that. And like, nope. Yes. It's probably good that overall as a general population, we eat less added sugar. However, like you said, that does not then mean, oh, we should all eat low carb. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I tend to like, if I see a new granola bar from a company or something and they have like a keto version, I'm like, I'm kind of judging you now, Luna bar or whatever it is for jumping on this fad train. And it's, it's kind of like when everything became gluten-free, um, because we thought that was healthier for everyone. Um, and like, what's great about that is it like made so many gluten-free options for people who actually need to be gluten-free. So like people who actually need to be keto, like they're going to have so many options now, which is awesome. But then I see things like butter being advertised as keto. And I'm like, well, yeah, like it always never had carbs in it in the first place. So I think there's just a general lack of education there, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think not one size fits all. And with any like fad diet, a lot of the times it is about one size fitting all this diet is the best diet for you. And there's no question about it. Um, And what I kind of like to say, if you're someone where you don't have any like extreme medical conditions, um, you know, maybe you're a generally healthy person um, and you're, you're not in an extreme like circumstance, a lot of the times you don't need like an extreme diet. Um, so if there's a diet that's kind of cutting out a whole food group just for the sake of it, (laughs) for the sake of health, um, you know, or if there's a diet that's cutting out like a whole, you know, macronutrient like carbs, like keto does, you know, it's, it's probably not for you unless you have a medical condition that would maybe make that more appropriate. And going back to the kind of disordered eating is that it is possible to have disordered eating without having a, you know, DSM five, you know, definition of an eating disorder. Like you do not have to be underweight to, you know, exhibit symptoms of anorexia. You don't not have to throw up your food to exhibit symptoms of other eating disorders. And one of the things that I've found in my personal experience is that having gone through phases where I had a really uh, disordered relationship with food is that 
the key thing that always came up to me was the anxiety I would feel when I was confronted with foods that I thought were dangerous or bad for me. And so being in a situation where I'm reading a menu or reading ingredients lists or weighing food, you know, things that would say, well, I, I'm afraid to eat this or I can't eat this. And all of a sudden you're stuck in this little tiny box at the bottom of the menu where like, well, I guess it's salad and that's it. You know, to label things as good or bad is really what kind of starts us down that slope of uh, possible disordered eating behavior. Yeah. And there's a book um, by Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani, and it's called Sick Enough. And one of her big things, she's um, a doctor who works in treating eating disorders. Um, And one of, you know, her big things in that book is that, you know, we think we have to like be at a certain level to have a problem, quote unquote, we need to be sick enough, you know, to be treated in any way. And you know, her whole thing in that book is like, that's not true. Like if you are starting to exhibit some symptoms, but maybe you don't quite fit certain criteria for a specific eating disorder, you, you could still seek treatment and change. And also before you end up going down the path, you know, where it becomes more serious and it is, you know, contributing to the top two, like highest mortality rates for mental health conditions. Um, anorexia nervosa is number number two. So, you know, it's very serious, again, kind of like underfueling, like, it's not just like, Oh, like, I kind of, you know, have some issues with food. No, like, it's very serious, it affects your life in a profound way. Um, and kind of back to you saying, like, um, there's a lot of foods like in the, you know, sat, like, like a Amer- standard American diet, which we abbreviate as sad, um, <laughs> you know, essentially that, you know, maybe have a lot of added sugar or they're very processed and they don't have a lot of like nutrients in them. And that's one of the, you know, contributors of us feeling like a food can morally be bad. Um, there's a difference between food having moral value and having like, a hold over your life and your decision-making process versus a food just being nutrient dense (laughs) or not nutrient dense. Um, And what are they going to do for me? You know, because there's a space for all of those foods in our diet and, you know, your intentions behind food choices when I'm working with clients and they know this because I talk about it all the time, um, their intentions about their food choices are far more important to me than the food choices themselves. And I, one of the reasons that somebody's listened to this episode and say, God, she keeps like bringing this up in her nutrition episodes. Like all we do is talk about disordered eating. And because I think it's really important because especially among runners specifically, and I'm not even going to say female runners, male runners too, there is a lot of body image, food relationship stuff that seems to arrive at the table when you become a runner or focus on your running performance that, like you said, we ascribe moral values to certain choices. We think that we have to eat a certain way to be a certain way, to look a certain way, to perform a certain way. And we tend to bring a lot of baggage, whether we know it or not, to what we're doing as runners. This is really important to talk about. It's really common. Yeah, it's really, really common, especially, I mean, I am kind of niche niche down to work with this type of population. So I see it all the time, but um, it's really common in runners. And I think too, like a lot of the messaging around exercise in the past, you know, two decades and, and plus probably, you know, has been about, okay, you need to exercise to look like 
X, Y, Z. Um, instead of like, we need to do cardio to keep our heart healthy and we need to strength train to be like a functional human. Um, and you know, a lot of it's not focused on, on the functionality or the enjoyment aspect of it. It's more focused on, Oh, what's this going to make me look like? Um, and what I look like equals health. Um, because that's just simply not true. And we have plenty of studies to show that that's not true. Um, and there is a, bigger problem, particularly in this country with accepting body diversity, um, that's rooted in a lot of different issue and, you know, issues and reasons, but yeah, I mean, it's super common in runners. Like a lot of us start running to lose weight, to burn calories, to kind of feed into that diet culture reasoning. Um, and for a lot of people, it turns into a lot more than that. You know, maybe they, you know, want to train to run a specific time or a specific race. And then they're not really focused on the calories anymore. They're focused on all this other stuff that we're talking about. Um, but for a lot of people, there is a disconnect and there is a downward spiral um, and there's not that transformation. So, you know, I think too, like, just like the reason why we choose to eat a certain food is super important to me as a practitioner. Um, the reason why you choose to run is also super important to me as a practitioner. So for runners who are wondering, okay, I've never really thought about my diet. I've never really thought about what I eat before. I don't think I have any weird, you know, kind of food relationship issues, but I'm curious now to know, am I eating enough carbohydrates to support my running? Are there any general guidelines for when you're dividing up your macronutrients for how much you run and how many carbs you should eat? Yeah. Oh, totally. And like, this is general information. So like I can just kind of state it off. Um, so I'll use like a 150 pound person just as a generic example, cause the math is easy. Um, but essentially like what's, what's useful from a carbohydrate standpoint, if you're someone who is like exercising, running, you know, for about an hour ish a day, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more, um, you know, working out moderately, you need between like five and seven grams per kilogram of carbs per day. So for a 150 pound person, that's about 340 to 477 grams of carbohydrates per day um, to start. So, and then, you know, if you're exercising for like one to three hours, you know, per day, or again, this could be divided into like your long run day where how you're exercising is just longer than what it typically would be during the week. You know, we need about six to 10 grams per kilogram of body weight of carbohydrates per day for that 150 pound person, you know, that's 408 to 680 grams of carbohydrates per day. And some people might be hearing that who have ever tracked food before and being like, oh my God, that is a lot of carbohydrates. You know, and then we get into the more elite level of people who are exercising for like three, four, five hours per day, and they need between eight and 12 grams per kilogram, which is about 544 to 816 grams of carbohydrate per day. And that range two is kind of what I'm talking about when I talk about carbo loading in the two to three days pre-race. It's that range that you want to utilize to top off your glycogen stores. Um, so yeah, so like it, depending on your exercise, you know, again, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we need about 130 grams per day just to keep our brain healthy, um, and function properly as a human. So, you know, if you're adding in any exercise on top of that, it goes up. Um, so for most runners, we're probably looking at at least that minimum of like 300 grams per day. If we're talking about like 150 pound person, it is done by body weight, but does that kind of answer your question? Definitely. So for us, uh, Imperial measurement Americans, so we take our body weight in pounds, so we convert it into kilograms yep. and then we apply a grams of carb per kilogram of body weight guideline to that. Yep. Yep. 
So, and so for carb loading, you said you want to be, we want to be on the upper end of that scale. Yeah. For that two to three days, especially if we're talking about like a distance that's going to take you uh, two hours or more to complete. So whether, you know, you're like a three hour half marathoner or, you know, a two hour and 15 minute marathoner, those apply. And you mentioned before about, and I've also watched this kind of rage across my Instagram feed, uh, sex differences between carbo loading with men and women. And so we're not really ascribing any meaningful statistical differences between how women versus men should carbo load. We really are just saying based on your body volume, (laughs) these are the guidelines. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part, that's true. Like the, there's more research coming out on, on females, um, female athletes in particular, which is really cool. But, um, because traditionally studies are done on men because men don't have complicated hormone cyclical things and they don't take hormonal birth control. So they're a little bit easier to study in a laboratory females are a bit harder, even though they take up over half of the population. Um, But essentially what we found so far from research is that, um, so to go through this in the short burst version, um, females have a menstrual cycle. Um, That's a thing. So essentially like the first part of the cycle, you know, day one, that's when we are having our period, hopefully, Um, you know, that kind of lasts through and gives us the follicular phase at the end of your period, which goes through ovulation from ovulation to the day before your period, we have the luteal phase. So those different phases of the cycle exist, basically different hormone fluctuations happen during those different phases. Um, During like our menstrual, so our period and our follicular phase, the week or so after our period, we are essentially a little bit, um, we're not good at, as good at storing glycogen because we use more carbohydrates for energy. We find that women don't eat enough carbs. So oftentimes they're not able to keep their glycogen stores topped off as well. Um, and then in the luteal phase, we um, use more fat for energy. So any carbs that we do eat, they do get stored as glycogen a little bit easier. And we have a bit more topped off stores during our luteal phase. We just don't have as great access to them. Um This difference is pretty minute though, unless we're talking about like the highest of high of elite athletes Um, and the recommendations at like the end of this big like review paper that came out talking about all this essentially says still carbo load using like eight to 12 grams per kilogram of body weight. Um, You know, females can still benefit from carbo loading in any phase of the cycle. So all of that to say, yeah, you might feel a little bit different in different phases. You might feel like a little bit better during some and a little bit not as good during some, but you're still capable of carbo loading and you're still capable of having a good performance. So when we are carbo loading to the degree that we should be based on our body mass, uh, is there a specific way that we should divvy it up during the day? Like I assume we're not supposed to necessarily sit down and eat a little, you know, a thousand grams of carbohydrate in one go, which would just be probably almost impossible. Uh, is it just like distributed throughout the day in our normal meals? How does that work? Someone right now is like challenge accepted. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I, it's going to be easier on you, um, on your, on your like GIs system and also from like a blood sugar spike and and drop standpoint um and just what you can physically fit into your body and actually want to eat before your race there's a lot of complexity here a lot of people a lot of people's appetites are poorer uh before their race because they're nervous um or they're just not exercising as much so their appetite's lower and this is the part where there isn't anything intuitive about a marathon um but essentially we do want to spread it out throughout the day so to get that much in I mean, I, I would typically recommend someone, you know, is having, you know, again, like at least 
60% of or more of their calories coming from carbohydrates. So if we're looking at the plate, it's at least half the plate, um, half of what's there, you know, have a breakfast, have snacks, have a lunch, have snacks, have a dinner, have snacks, have like liquids throughout the day, if that's easier. Um, just to kind of put it into context too, this is just a fun calculation I did. So about like that 680-ish grams of carbohydrate per day for that 150-pound person that's in that like carbo load range, you know, that would be about 11 bagels. So, you know, you could eat 11 bagels <laughs> or you could kind of divvy up those carbs from other sources, but I would spread it out throughout the day so that you're not so overwhelmed. What if somebody is listening to this and saying, all right, I, these are the, these are the, carbs I should eat. And I know based on my protein recommendations, I need to eat X amount of protein. And then they're doing the math in their head and saying, this seems like an amount of food that would cause weight gain in me. How would you respond to a person who's concerned about that? That's a really common concern. I think if if you're listening to this and it's like the week before your race, like Take some of the themes of this conversation and apply them, but do not feel like you need to start tripling your carb intake if you've never done that before. Um, because essentially, if you feel like eating essentially enough to fuel your body is going to cause weight gain, um, then we have to start somewhere else with you. Um, you know, we kind of have to go back to the baseline um, of your overall health and metabolism and make sure that you are fueling your body enough and that your body composition and your metabolism does kind of even itself out. It gets used to being fueled well enough because if you're the type of person where you're like, I feel like I look at a cookie and I gain five pounds, you know, there's usually a biological reason for that. And it often comes from a place of just having, you know, maybe under fueled or inappropriately fueled. There could be some binging going on. Um, there could be, you know, some metabolic, uh, slowing down that's go that's gone on. Um, so, I mean, if, if that's you, you know, there is a little bit more work to be done. But, you know, essentially, if you are eating enough to fuel your body, and we are still eating enough to fuel our bodies the week before our race, and all we're doing is essentially switching some of those calories to come from carbohydrates instead of protein and fat. No, it shouldn't cause weight gain. It might cause a little bit of water retention because we're topping off our glycogen stores. And like I said, there's, you know, three grams of water stored with every one gram of glycogen. Um, but that's not a bad thing. You know, you need to be that plane sitting heavy on the tarmac in order to take off and make it to your destination. Oh, one last question I have before uh, we talk about what your, your fall course is. Um, do we include our run fueling carbohydrates in our daily carbohydrate gui range guideline? No. <laughs> so it's extra. So we have our, we have our like daily carbs. Then we have the things you need to do when you fuel your run. Those are separate things. Yeah, they're separate. So when you're fueling your run, which just means like you're bringing like a goo or a carbohydrate source of some sort on the run with you and taking it in, um, you know, that's really to kind of keep you in from redlining essentially on your log run and to keep those glycogen stores from bottoming out. Um, they're still going to need to be repleted after your run. So yeah, I would keep those separate. This has been really fascinating. And I think it really helps for some people to be able to kind of put some numbers to what they're doing other than saying like, Oh, you should eat enough. And it's like, well, what is enough? And we do have research to support, like you just laid out, you know, general recommendations for look, if you do this much activity and you weigh this much, these are your 
rough calculations for our carb intake. I hopefully that's really helpful for some of the people who are listening to this episode. Yeah. And a lot of people listening might be like, wow, I'm not even close. Um, and that's really common. We find that in research too, that this is the recommendation and a lot of people are not <laughs> even close. Um, so I think like doing that in a gradual way is, is usually the best. I have some cold Turkey people that can just rip the bandaid off, but I think, you know, building it up gradually, taking the theme of maybe I need to eat more carbs in general, um, um, and building up gradually during your training um, so that you can then fine tune it the weeks of your race into your taper. Um, that's going to benefit you the most rather than panicking and saying, I have to eat so many carbohydrates. And also if, if that does instill a lot of like fear of eating that many carbohydrates in you, then you might want to explore your relationship with food as well, because there could be more there that we need to address. So I, I know some people are probably thinking, well, I don't really know if I want to work with somebody one-on-one. -on -one. Like, I don't think I need to go see a therapist, but they can work with somebody like you who's a dietitian, like just exploring the relationship you have with food and helping them fuel better. Yeah, that's a huge part of what I do. I mean, a lot of the times I will talk to someone for a bit and say, all right, yeah, like they do, they would benefit from seeing a therapist because this is outside of my scope, even though I have, I have training in this as a nutrition therapist to work with, you know, those with poor food relationships. Um, we can maximize our time better together if you go see a therapist sometimes. Um, but for sure, like if you're thinking, all right, I'm kind of teetering on that edge. I think I maybe might have some barriers around my relationship with food. Um, but I've definitely, you know, not in the category of thinking I have a, an eating disorder that's, you know, very much like specific. Um, and I'm even just not even sure. Um, yeah, I mean, working with like a nutrition coach, dietitian, especially, you know, someone with a background in that, because we all specialize in different things, um, can definitely be really, really valuable. Because if you're just trying to piecemeal all of this together over Google, or over Instagram, and you're not sure what applies to you, it can take a really long time and sometimes cause more damage. And also maybe you're thinking, actually, my relationship with food is great. I just want to really eke out that two, three, 4% gain on my next marathon. Like this is about performance, baby. That's also what a dietitian is for. Yeah. Sign me up for those people. That sounds really fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. So if you want to, you know, focus on your performance, that's definitely something that I would love to help with. Um, I've helped hundreds of people with that. And it's really fun to kind of be able to follow your journey and fine tune things. And like to some of the recommendations, you might be, you know, following them to a T because you, you're well researched and you've, you feel confident about what you found, but you may find that sometimes it causes other issues and just having that professional to troubleshoot with, um, you know, when the typical thing that worked for Kipchoge didn't work for you, what do I do now? You know, it can be really helpful just to have that, that professional to ask questions to who knows everything about you. Cool. And I assume, cause I know you do have something that's uh, opening up this fall. Is this something that we might learn in your fall? Is it a small group program? Tell us what you're uh, working yeah. On. So the, the strong runner Academy, um, is my small group coaching program, um, that will, the next kind of cohort will be launching in the fall, probably in October. Um, but I'll start kind of talking to people about it in September to see if it's a good fit for them. Um, and essentially we follow, like it's a 12 week program. Um, we basically, you get, um, online course modules that talk about like how to build your plate as a runner. Um, you know, how to build your plate as a runner around your training, what to eat before your runs what to eat during your runs, what to eat after your runs, how to hydrate properly, 
before, during, and after your runs, how to make a good race plan strategy for your fueling, um, how to do, you know, like taper nutrition and carbo loading, just like we talked about, very specific examples. Um, also a lot about body image. We do cover relationship with food and body image during the course and how to use that to your benefit as an athlete and also help your mindset as an athlete because we have to have kind of a tough mindset sometimes to get through some of these hard training runs. Um, so some mindset tools there as well. And the course and the program also does implement um, strength training for runners um, and how to fit that into your training program, what strength training for runners even means, and how to avoid injuries is essentially what we're all about. And I do have other professionals like physical therapists and chiropractors who come on and give us some bonus talks um, and some bonus advice on that aspect as well. So it's a group coaching program, which is really fun because runners are awesome and they always feed off each other in the group calls, but we meet weekly. Um, and there is also the option to like upgrade and also get one-on-one -on -one time with me as well. If you do have a more specific case, or if you just like, I want the information. Um, but people ask me questions like during the calls and stuff too. So yeah, it's super fun. I'm excited. That sounds really great. And that's definitely something where I, as a running coach and understanding specifically like ethically, legally, morally, like my sphere, my scope really ends where specific nutrition advice comes in. Like I can talk about, well, the in-run fueling guidelines and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. When somebody's like, what should I eat for dinner? I'm like, that is way outside of my realm. This is when you need to go talk to a dietitian and get some actual dietitian advice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it, it really does depend on the person. So, um, yeah, we really get to dive into, and I keep the groups, um, you know, to 10 to 15 people. So everyone has time to like ask their own questions and kind of feed off each other too. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we definitely go into all of those specifics as best we can, um, to answer those questions. So a lot of them too, like have running coaches, um, you know, as well, I'm, I am a running coach and a personal trainer, but they have their own. So they're really using this as like their nutrition and maybe strength training supplement if they need it. So it's really good to see people with good running coaches like you, <laughs> um, who have really good, like baselines of training and, and knowledge around this stuff. It's all part of the process. And I think for most people who, as you said, just kind of picked up running and maybe just to lose a couple of pounds, found themselves a few years later with uh, several coaches and a whole new wardrobe and schedule around their new sport. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. I'm like, what did I used to do on the weekends? I don't even remember. <laughs> well, I remember when I had more pairs of regular shoes compared to pairs of sneakers. <laughs> Um, Holly, this is immensely informative. I really thank you for your time and coming on. And hopefully we've given some people some really concrete information. I know that fingers crossed, we are going to have races going on this fall and hopefully obviously in the spring and moving on and on and, uh, really helping people understand the importance of fueling for their performance goals. It is really, it's really a light bulb moment when you, somebody, uh, makes a switch to be properly fueled, it really changes the way they can approach what they're trying to do. Yeah, it really can. I mean, and I'm, I'm not immune to this. Like when I started running, I was a freshman in college and I was a pre-med major and I didn't know that much about nutrition. Nutrition. In fact, I had some relationship with like issues with nutrition. Um, and I really didn't know how to, I was like, why would people eat while they're running? Like, that's weird. What's the point of that? And now, you know, I just kind of laugh. I've, I've been able to implement so much of this knowledge on myself and with all of my clients. And I mean, it really is something you can just build off of. Um, and it's really, really helpful to like start during your training, um, and not save it all till the end. 
So Holly, if people want to find you, follow you, work with you, join your small group coaching this fall, tell us where they can check you out. Yeah, thanks. Um, so they can follow me. Um, I'm most active on Instagram, which is just fit cookie nutrition on Instagram. I used to have like a cookie catering company in college and I love cookies. So that's where that comes from. Um, you and Dina Caster, yeah, huh? <laughs> I'm not a regular dietitian. I'm a cool dietitian. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they can follow me at fit cookie nutrition on Instagram. Um, or they can visit my website, which is just fit and there's links there to like my podcast and, you know, to join like the wait list for this group coaching program. If you want me to set up a free call with you to talk about it more um, and a lot of other resources too. So they can hang out with me over there. That's awesome. I know that I, I share, of course, I meet a lot of my guests through Instagram, but I've definitely shared a lot of your posts. I know I'll continue to share them because you do put out such good content that I think is so important for runners to know about. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm happy me dancing around in my reels is helping people, um, you know, Instagram algorithm, just trying to keep up with it one dance at a time. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's all we can do is just try to stay ahead of the algorithm just for one day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find me on Instagram at runningexplained or at my website, runningexplained.co. If you have a question you'd like to have answered, you can submit it in my stories every Monday or email me at elizabeth at runningexplained.co. That's E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H at runningexplained.co. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.